As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Nomos Podcast. This episode is with Edward Chesson, who is an English teacher, a writer, and a lover of poetry, and in particular, the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, who is the subject of this conversation. So, without further ado, I present to you episode 34, Tragic Joy, W.B. Yeats, and On Bailey's Strand. Well, at university I did my dissertation on Yeats and Nietzsche, on the Irish national poet and the German philosopher. What was the title? So it was, it was something like the Yeats's reading of Nietzsche, the case of On Bailey's Strand, and so it was specifically about one play that Yeats produced called On Bailey's Strand, which is about the mythical hero of Ireland, Cahullan, and how Yeats was influenced by the birth of tragedy. So how the writing of that play was influenced by Nietzsche's first book which is the birth of tragedy. You were at university and you yes. had to choose a dissertation to write. We could come up with anything like most students at university. And you were studying literature. Yes, and history. So it had to be something to do with literature and something to do something that was historical at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you obviously had a passion for Yeats. Oh, of course. <laughs> and yeah. you loved his poetry. And yeah. so you took this one play... I just want to know, like, why, why, what, what led you to doing your research? What led you down that path of research? Well, I wanted to do something important with my dissertation. Obviously, this is the young undergraduate thinking, but I wanted to do something that was significant. And I, at the time, I was reading the Ten Symphonies of Gorkhanov. I think I read it in my last year of university, and. In the December of that year, I'd gone to Freiburg and I went hiking in the Black Forest. And I went to the hut where Heidegger lived and he wrote Being in Time. And in the, in the editions of Being in Time, it always says at the front title page, Being in Time. And then underneath it says, he wrote, like, as if you'd write published in, he wrote Tottenauberg, Die Schwarzwald, um, 1927. You know, so he he wanted it to be known that that book, the place where the book was written, was the mm. being and time, the place mm. and the time. Amazing. Yeah. So I went there and I was full of it. So I just had to do something on Nietzsche or Heidegger 
And I had all kinds of crazy ideas of different, it took a long time to get to that. It mm. wasn't straightforward. I think most people can relate to that if they've written a, a dissertation at university. Mm -hmm. It was a long process of whittling down, throwing things, scrapping up, you know, scrunching up bits of paper and chucking mm -hmm. them in the paper bin. And then it got really, because it had to, it was only a short dissertation anyway, it's undergraduate dissertation. Mm -hmm. So it had to be very, it was quite frustrating how narrow it had to be. <laughs> so I had to narrow it down, narrow it down until I found out a way to make it really sort of direct. And it was about, yeah, Yeats's play on Bailey Strand, which is very rarely performed actually um most people don't know yates wrote plays really but one of the great projects of his life was to open a theater in mm. dublin Amazing. and then it was on that play and nietzsche's book what's the play about so the play is about this mythical the mythical hero of ireland cahullan right. and cahullan was from Ulster, which has always been the land of the kings of Ireland. And he was this great warrior. And he was always in conflict with the older kings who were much white. So he was much, they were much wiser than him and he was much more virile than them. Mm -hmm. So he was, there was always this kind of conflict, bitterness between the two of them. So in the play, a young man alights on the shore, lands on the shore from Scotland. Mm -hmm. And he comes onto the shore and he enters Cahullan's camp and he challenges Cahullan to fight. Mm. And Cahullan is outraged by this. He's absolutely outraged that someone would do this. But he's also outraged because he sees something in this boy that he hasn't seen in any of the other men that fight for him. He sees him as particularly special. He says, And he says to the kings that... Um, let him join me, join my war band. Um, the play begins with Cahullan and the king having a huge argument <laughs> about um, Cahullan's, this woman that Cahullan had when he was in Scotland. And, he, and she, th this king is saying, she's not, why won't you settle down and marry? He's saying to Cahullan, why won't you settle down and marry and become a proper king? Why are you and your war band like um, just like the um, birds that just sort of migrate here and there and is causing mayhem across the country. Why won't you settle down? <laughs> and he says, I will never settle down. Then he says, you um, were with this wild woman of the camp. And he goes, you call her a woman of the camp. You didn't see the passion in her eyes. You didn't see the wisdom. You didn't hear the wisdom in her words. You know nothing about her. And then it's like this head-on confrontation. And he could uh, abandoned this woman anyway. He did leave her. And he's back in Ireland, but he's still defending her. And then this young boy, he's a lad, he turns up and the kings are saying that he has to be killed because he's a foreigner. And Cahullan's saying, no, let him join my men. And the king uh, blocks it. So Cahullan then has to kill this boy. But it has to be a duel. It has to be fair. Mm. But obviously the boy doesn't really stand a chance. And then Cahullan finds out that that boy was his son. And it was the son he had with that woman. Oh. and that he'd left her pregnant he had no idea uh. and that was his son and heir and then Cahullan goes out into the waves on because the strand you know, it's like, he goes out from beyond the strand into the waves with his sword fighting the waves until he disappears and drowns as well he's gone completely gone under the ocean oh. and um, Yates saw this play as like, a, like the Oedipus story 
mm. but almost in reverse because it was the father killing his son rather than the son realizing that he's killed his father and so and then he also gouges his eyes out in a way he goes into the waves and he kills himself mm. and yates believed that the modern theater at the time didn't wasn't able to perform plays like this like it mm. just wasn't able to because like, the whole thing about it was geared up for musicals and pantomimes mm. and so the theater audience were looking for musicals and pantomimes but he, him at the t at yates at the time with with ezra pound had um rediscovered the japanese ancient theater i don't know how pound came across these translations but they were translations of no plays and the no plays are all in verse mm. po poetic the actors wear masks, which makes it almost impossible for an actor to do what they want to do, which is like, express themselves. Oh, wow. So the actors wear ritual masks. Yeah. There's hardly any movement on the stage. It's all symbolic movement. Uh -huh. And the speech has to be in rhyme. Ooh. And so, so it actually removes all kind of individuality from the actor. Well, all, all the obvious ways to express your individuality. Yeah. But then, the, and the plays always end up being these sort of symbolic tales or tragedy like japanese forms of tragedy not greek tragedy but right. but yates and ezra pound wanted to create a theater house or they even said this kind of play could be done yates said i want to revive the ancient theater like the theater of um, sophocles mm. and he said the ancient theater can be done with just a robe around a man with a, a staff on the floor mm -hmm. and uh, maybe a tapestry behind him and that's it like, there doesn't need to be the lighting, there doesn't need to be the all the special effects, mm. the backdrops. Like the Victorian stages are really elaborate. Yes. And Yates basically all of this took away from the simplicity of ancient theatre. And he found that the Japanese still had it in the modern day. They were they kept their medieval tradition, the Japanese no tradition, but that the the Western theatre, which came from like Shakespeare, but then was a revival of uh, an Elizabethan revival of what they thought the Greek theatre was like. So Yates wanted to go back to the source and he said that this play could be, he said, these plays, I want them to be able to be performed. You could perform them in a drawing room or on a stage or under a tree. Amazing. Like it could be done anywhere. And all you would need was three actors and an audience, a small audience. That'd be it. Because, because, because what was holding theatre companies back was they had to make money. They had to sell tickets to pay for all this stuff, all this special effects and, Yates believed all of this took away from the original Greek theatres, which were like houses of worship almost. Yeah. They were houses of worship of the gods. Yeah. And the, the chorus sang as the tragedy was going on. And the plays were almost always tragedies, or they were comedies like Euripides. Otherwise, they were tragedies. And the god that they were evoking that came onto the stage or would possess the actor and the audience and the chorus at the same time Dionysus. Yeah. So Dionysus is the god of intoxication, and Dionysus is what bring uh, is what Aristotle calls catharsis in poetics. So every English literature student from A levels knows about catharsis because we all have to do a Shakespeare tragedy, probably Hamlet or Macbeth, right? And then you have or King Lear, and you have to know about Shakespeare's trying to create a cathartic moment. Yes. Yeah. But Yeats believed that catharsis was far more powerful than just this sort of just a, like, a, like a, a tragedy. It was, it was a whole audience being um, united in one emotion.
along with the chorus and the actors. So that's the Dionysian intoxication. Wow. You know, that's, the, that's Dionysus. Well, I understand that Greek tragedy was a social duty. The populace were almost obligated to go to watch the tragedies in order to cleanse them of their to cleanse them of their illnesses mm. so that they would be free from them and get this catharsis and then go back into society as healthier people. Well, Yeats also believed that his theatre house would have a political effect, would have a so would, would perform a kind of a social duty. Mm. So he wanted an Irish national theatre and he wanted to put on these plays about the origin of Ireland. And it was, it was before Ireland attained, it was before 1916. So the Theatre House was opened in 1904. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was to create an Irish national movement, which is, had already begun and it had been going on for almost 100 years. But Yeats really did have a huge impact on, on the whole notion of what it meant to be Irish. Mm. You know, yeah, despite being a Protestant, you know, and despite being from the aristocracy. So from this play yeah. that you studied, how did, wh where does the link come to Nietzsche? Yeah, well, Yeats lectured on Nietzsche before he opened the play, uh, before he opened the theatre house, the, the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. He would lecture on that book, on Nietzsche's book. Which um, one? The, his first book, The Birth of Tragedy. Oh, yeah. So in German it's called, uh, so the birth of tragedy from the spirit of music. Wow. And the, so the book is Nietzsche's first book. I think he was 25 when he wrote the book. And it was dedicated to Wagner's wife, Cosima Wagner. And it was given to her as a birthday present on her, it was either a birthday or a Christmas present in 1976. 1876, yeah. And Wagner performed the Siegfried Idol on that day. Yeah, so Siegfried is the German national hero. Siegfried is Germany and Kuhlein is Ireland. And so the Siegfried Idol is before Wagner had written the Ring Cycle. So he was already thinking of Siegfried then. And Nietzsche's book is about the ancient Greek theatre. And it's about the Oedipal tragedies, as well as comedies. And it's it's quite a it's it's a lot it's a very rich book although it's very short it's hard to sum up mm -hmm. but it's it's about the original tragic theater house in ancient Greece mm. pre-socratic Greece and you know the the, the role of um, the theater house in bringing people together and that Dionysian spirit and then the end of the book is really about how Wagner with his music has recreated this in the modern time. And then he says, Nietzsche says in the book, the German knight that has lain asleep in a cave for so long is now waking from his slumber. The German knight who has lain asleep in, in his cave for so long. He's waking from his slumber. Yeah, he believed that Wagner was opening the door to a national revival of the spirit of the Germans, you know, mm. which is exactly what Yeats wanted to do. Mm. Were they successful in awakening that spirit? In Ireland. In Ireland, in Germany. Well, 
one of my friends at university, he said to me that um, the Dionysian spirit that Yeats and Nietzsche and Wagner were dabbling with is like opening a Pandora's box Mm. and you can't control what comes out of it once you open it. Mm. And Yeats was shocked by what happened in Ireland in 1916. You know, he said the nightmare rides upon sleep, famous line in poetry about 1900, his poem's 1919. So it's three years after the Easter Rising and it's now into Ireland's civil war, which lasted for four years. What was the Easter Rising? The Easter Rising was the, um, was the, uh, the uprising in Dublin where the proclamation was read out that Ireland was establishing itself as a free state and as a republic independent of Great Britain. So it's the first, first act of, uh, and at first, successful anti-colonial uprising in the British Empire and the first revolution of the 20th century before Russia, before all the monarchies of Europe and Turkey fell, Mm. you know, like that decade, within 10 years, Ireland had become independent and then Russia withdrew from, a year later, Russia withdrew from World War I and the, the Kaiser was soon executed. Then Germany was forced to, forced to lose World War I they didn't actually lose, but they were forced to lose World War One. Kaiser was executed. No, no, the Kaiser was forced into abdication. The Tsar, like the Tsar sorry, the Tsar, the Tsar, yeah. the Tsar of Russia. Yeah. And then the Ottoman Empire was forced to was destroyed. You know, uh, the Kingdom of Greece. There was a communist revolution, nineteen twenty four. The Greek royal family came to Britain mm-hmm. and America. So there was this. It's a Pandora's box. The 20th century, you could say, uh, was it, it was a time of war. Yeah. You know, it was bloodshed, that widespread conflict. And so this was something that Yeats said, did a, did a certain play I wrote, send out men, the English shot. Wow. So Nietzsche said that Wagner has is, is opened the door towards reawakening the German spirit. Yeah. And Yeats wanted to replicate this in Ireland under with the Irish spirit with the Irish people. Yes. Yeah, I've never met a single person from Ireland who didn't know who Yeats was. Right. Yeah. But they didn't love Yeats as well. Didn't love yeah, exactly. But and he, he was very controversial. Was he? He was very controversial. Like he became a senator in the Irish Republic. So after all that, although he you know he was shot by the fighting that took place. Mm. Many people many people left Ireland because of it. Mm. You know, he said um, in 1919, many ingenious, lovely things are gone. And then he goes on to say, the nightmare rides upon sleep. Mm. A drunken soldiery can leave a mother murdered at the door to go scot-free. The night will sweat with terror as before we pieced our thoughts into philosophy and tried to bring the world under a rule who are but weasels crouching in a hole. So... Yeah, he was disgusted by what happened in Ireland. And is this? The, I don't. I, but he still became a senator, right? You know, the thing is, I don't know yeah. about the history of Ireland, so at all. So I don't mm. know. Um, I mean, you mentioned 1913, 19, sixteen. What actually happened? What was go, what was happening there? Because nineteen sixteen for me is like. Middle of the First World War. Yeah, the Somme in July, I think, or June 1916. Mm-hmm. But in, in Easter 1916, 
the the Irish um, rose up. It wasn't all the Irish, but those around the, the 16 leaders, they started a rebellion based in Dublin and then it spread across. They had units across the country who took over the local government. They in Ireland, they, they in Dublin, sorry, they targeted the post office. They shut off communication, and they declared themselves an independent state. It's very tactical. Mm. Like we were talking earlier about tactics and revolution. It sounds just like yeah. Trotsky and very similar to the Trotsky. Russian Revolution. Yeah. yeah, there were sixteen leaders of the nineteen sixteen rising. Right, they were all killed. There was only one man who wasn't killed, Eamon de Valera, who became the president of the Irish Republic, and who was president through World War II, so he was president for about 20 years. Hmm. So they rose up against the British, and then the British army, was Ireland was part of Great Britain, it wasn't separate, it had been part of Great Britain for hundreds of years, since, since the Norman Conquest. Hmm. So, and some of the best British army regiments are Irish regiments, they still are, like the Royal Irish Hussars, uh, the British army on the Rhine was almost all, in Germany during the Cold War, was almost all Irish regiments. Hmm. Yeah. Northern Irish regiments. So Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom, right? But the Republic, so it's the rest of the rest of the country, yeah, is independent. And it took a long time for it to be. It wasn't successful overnight. Mm. You know, like the British executed all those leaders. They forced them out of the post office. They won in Dublin. Wow. But then the fighting carried on, and eventually Ireland became independent. They executed all the leaders of the of the uprising. Wow. You know, and that, but then there was a negotiated withdrawal of British troops from the from what became the Republic of Ireland. It took a while. So the British were busy and executing what, and fighting the Irish while the Battle of the Somme yeah. was happening. And most of the regiments that were mobilised in Dublin, they were all men who were too old to be fighting in the Western Front or wounded. Oh, wow. So this is all while there's... These are all I, the old boys. But there's all a bunch of Irish men on the, in the trenches of the First World War. And there, yeah, there were still Irishmen there. Yeah, oh, wow. exactly. And the and the regiments that are mobilised also they were Irish fighting Irish. Mm. No. So then, what happened next? Well, there was a civil war, the Irish civil war. I I really don't know anything about any of this. Yeah, well, it went on until I think nineteen twenty four. Wow. Oh, so there was all of this stuff happening in Ireland in the early twenties, and Yeats was a part of this. Yes. What was his role? national poet his role was a poet he he had i mean he died in 1939 okay and he was at a grand old age when he passed away mm. i think he was born in 1865 okay but he had he said in this poem um, to ireland in the coming times is while still i may i write for you the land i love the dream i knew so he, he loved ireland yeah he goes i i Know that I would accounted be true brother, true brother of a company that sang to sweeten Ireland's wrong, ballad and story, ran and song, nor be I any less of them. So he, he saw himself as one of the poets of Ireland, mm. singing, what does it say? To sang to sweeten Ireland's wrong. Mm. Yeah, that sang to sweeten Ireland's wrong, nor be I any less of them. And then it goes on, he goes, while still I may, I write for you. Don't know who he's addressing. It could be one person. It could be the land. It could be anyone who reads the poem. It could be the Irish people. The, la the, the land I lived. Sorry, the, the land I loved. The dream I knew. 
No. So did he spark the revolution? No. You, you quoted that line of the poem. He knew all those people personally who did. He knew all of them personally. He socialised with them. A lot of them were from very high, high society. I think he, he was in love with a woman who was married to one of the leaders as well. But no, you mentioned that he wrote that, that poem where he was almost taking the blame for it. He yeah, wrote... I don't know where that is. If it's a poem or... It is a poem. It says, did, did a certain play I wrote send out men the English shot? So was he taking responsibility? He did, for yeah, he did. He so, did. But was it, him, was it him that sparked it then? Well, the Abbey Theatre was like a... It was, it was like a a pit of energy in Dublin. Mm. You know, there were big crowds that would come. They, 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 they struggled to begin with. And Yeats's plays um, had a sort of, they weren't all successful. You know, they didn't always hit it with the audience. But they, ha they had big audiences. You know, they have riots in the theatre as well. People would riot because they thought that this was anti-Catholic. Uh, you know, and the Catholic Church didn't like what they were doing. Right. So they would tell people they sort of stoke up tension. <laughs> you know. But he was living out the sort of the philosophy in that book, in the in Nietzsche's book, The Birth of Tragedy. He was trying to put it into action. Which was the replication or the the, the revival of the the Greek mm. theatre. Yes. He even wrote his own version of Oedipus Rex. But he's not really known for his, for his plays. No, but he put a lot of time into them, a lot of energy into them. But it's just, yeah, I suppose it's just a sign of the time we live in that he's not remembered for his plays. They're not very popular anymore. So how, would, how could one reawaken the flame of Yeats in the contemporary time? Well, I think we should follow out what he said. He said, I, my, my theatre will be the ancient theatre. All you need is a rug and a staff mm. and a cloak. And he'll be able to do it. You can do it under a tree or in a drawing room of a nice house. He's given it to us. He's, all you need is the play and, and three people to perform it. You don't need anything else. How long is the play? They're very short. Uh. They're very short plays. So how long would it take Intense, to perform? 45 minutes maximum. They're all one-act plays. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So why don't we do it? Yeah, we should do it. Let's do it. How many? We need three people. We need three people, yeah, and a, a good enough room. But does it have to be live, or could you actually record it and do it as a like a just a? Well, I think nowadays I'm sure you could get away with recording it. So let's do it. Should it. Be, it should be live though. Well, let's do both. Yeah, do a live performance. It's recorded. Who's going to be number three? Who's going to be number three? We'll put an ad out. If anyone wants to be number three in a performance, uh, a spontaneous performance of WB Yates. What's on Bailey Strand. On Bailey Strand. Send me a message. Right, we'll, we'll see who gets back to us. <laughs> <laughs> what fun. I want to really, because I, I know you're passionate about Yates and he's like one of your kind of heroes almost. And I want to just go deeper into Yeats. Because I, 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 I only know 
two or three of his poems. And I really don't know anything about him. Mm. And why was he so significant? I mean, other than the fact that he produced this beautiful poetry, but like the man himself, who was he? How would you describe him? Well, I'd say he was a man of passion. He did everything with passion. What does that mean? Well, with Yeats, it means that he he was a writer, mm. and but he also he also saw himself as having a social duty. That's why he became a senator at the end of his life, mm. and that's why he wrote for his country, for his land, not for his country, but for his land, for his people. Mm-hmm. And he got into all, dabbled in all kinds of things because he believed that human being, he didn't just believe in his poetry, he believed in a whole other world of fairies and ghosts and spirits, mm. whole unseen world that was on his side. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, he was very passionate, he really believed in it. And he, dab- he dabbled in all kinds of weird things. Like? Weird stuff like um, like seances and things like that. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, he was and into like, all of that. Yeah, and, and automatic writing. So he had a wife who, his wife did um, automatic writing. Yeah. Which is where you almost, you, there's something else telling you what to write. And you're just writing. You don't think, what should I write? You just write what's coming to you. Have you done it before? I haven't done it before. It's amazing. It, that is amazing. It's so yeah. much fun. And you know what? The amazing thing about it is not when you're writing it. You just write. There's actually a video on my Instagram, I think, of me doing it. So mm. yeah, I, a friend of mine just filmed me on um, slow-mo. Right. All the, you know, I thought that was just how you write. No, so that, that was you writing. That was me writing, but yeah. that was automatic writing. Oh wow! That was just like yeah. <laughs> but no, this was much. It was much more um, esoteric for Yeats. In I hate to way? use that word to refer to him. Right, but in what but way? In that he really believed in this ancient. He believed in 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 like um, that, that there was this ancient tradition of wisdom. Mm. Uh, there was a society called the Golden Dawn. He he was affiliated with at some point, but I don't know the details. So I don't want to say how far or what. Yeah, yeah. But there is this. He believed that from the time of Babylon and like Pythagorean Greece, mm. that there was always a tradition of knowledge that had been passed on, mm. and that the poets also inherited this knowledge, and they passed it on as well. So he didn't believe that poetry was just rhyming and writing and expressing yourself. He believed it was actually being part of an ancient tradition that had a responsibility to teach men beauty oh. and to teach them the truth. Wow. And in, in his last poems, he talks about this. He says, Swear by what the sages spoke round the Mariotic Lake that the witch of Atlas knew. So there's something, Atlas is ancient, ancient times, mm. that the witch of Atlas knew spoke and set the cocks accrue. Swear by those women by those horsemen, complexion and form are superhuman. So this is a bit of Nietzsche coming in. Uh-huh. That pale, long-visaged company, the heirs in immortality, 
completeness of their passion won. Now they ride the wintry dawn, where Ben Bourbon sets the scene, here's the gist of what they mean. Mm. And this whole poem goes on, and it ends with the really famous three lines that's in, inscribed on his grave. Yeah. And he's buried under Ben Bourbon. Under Ben Bourbon, Ben Bourbon was this um, hill. It's, you need to look it up. Anyone listening to this has to look up a photo of it. It's got a very distinctive shape. Ben Bourbon. Aye. Great. And it's a great hill. <laughs> when you look at it, you think, magnificent hill. <laughs> <laughs> and his grand, an ancestor of his was a rector there in the, one of the churches. And he's buried there. He says, uh, cast the cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. That's how the poem ends. Mm. But it's in five different sections. And it's all about this thing that, that he believed was being transmitted through the generations and that had to be carried on. Mm. It goes completely against what most people are taught in school. So it does, there's not even any point in trying to go into it and explain it to to try and explain it would actually ruin it but it was this ancient wisdom that he believed in that went right through from the beginning of humanity and that had to be carried on and that po he felt poets were a part of that you know and that's why he said that he, he believed in the ancient theater he wanted to revive a kind of a ritual mm. you know and in that poem he says um bring the souls of man to god yeah he said talking to people like he's saying poet and sculptor do the work bring the souls of man to god make them fill the cradles right this is amazing you know? yeah it? so it is amazing well I, I usually i had no idea who the man was and and it's like he was tapping into a well that's the perfect thing to say yeah and allowing whatever was underneath it just to mm to come yeah. up because he also wrote books he wrote a book where he interviewed people in the, the peasantry in western ireland who he believed were a whole race of people that just knew all this they everyone knew it mm. they didn't talk about it but everyone knew about this like about the fairies and about spirits and and things that are passed on in the human gene pool or that you could say that are ancestral you know that are inherited even faces Mm. You know, that you know, if you look at pictures of people from 100 years ago, it's, you could, like, I saw that person on the tube yesterday, you know, mm. or even 400 years. You look at like the Dutch paintings, the portraits, and you think, I saw that guy in Hackney. It's <laughs> like a hipster. Yeah. yeah. Amazing, eh? But it is this thing of tapping into the, the ancient soul. The ancient soul. Or the, that part. It's what in the episode on the Vault Gang. Mm. See, Dr. Ali Azali is talking about he's talking about Ernst Jünger's essay, The Vault Gang, and how like that is the journey. The journey is to get there, mm. to get into that that deepest part of your spirit mm. in order to allow the your your humanity to arise and overflow out of you as this Waldgang, as this free spirit. And I mean, like, so with my, um, you know, my journey with my life coach, 
And that's, it's all been that. It's all, how do you get, how do you tap into the well that is inside every single human being? How do you get to it? How do you find it? And then tap into it and allow it to flow up and emerge and, and like overflow out of you? Yeah, well, I always thought that when I read the Volgang, when Ernst Singer talks about how the poets are people that, the poet, that poetry has that liberating effect. Mm. I was always thought, yeah, that's what Yeats Yeats has. That he's a true poet. Mm. He's a real poet. Amazing. Tell me more. Give me more. I, I want. I, I like. I've. This is amazing. Like I. I just give me more. Keep going. Just tell me anything. I don't care. Just... There was a lady who was very important in Yeats's life called Lady Gregory. She was his patron. So she looked after him. She enabled him to live his own lifestyle while he was a young, especially when he was a young writer. Mm. She knew he was talented. And she, she was the co-founder of the Abbey Theatre with Yeats. And her son was a, um, an airman mm-hmm. in the Royal Flying Corps for Great Britain during World War I. Yeah. And he was killed in a, he was playing with shot down. Wow. He was a very young man. And Yeats wrote a poem about him called An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. And it's, it's a brilliant poem. It's taught in schools a lot. A lot of people know this poem. And it starts off, if I can remember it, it goes, I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere amid the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I serve, I do not love. And it's a, because Nietzsche had this idea of the love of fate, amor fati. And Yeats's idea of tragic joy, uh, which is the joy of the dying hero on the stage, mm. is a joy because they're also submitting to their fate. Mm. Uh, it's a very interesting idea. Um, when you, yeah, it's a very interesting idea. So tragic joy is the joy of the hero at the moment of their tragic destruction oh wow yeah so there's no suffering there's no self-pity oh there's no moaning there's no talk of the suffering right and this is actually perhaps Nietzsche's largest influence on the 20th century because Nietzsche was a man of great suffering Mm. but he hated the victim worship of Christianity and the inversion of values that he believed Judaism had created in response to their own suffering. So their suffering and humiliation under the Romans became an inversion of values that the Romans had to be the evil ones. Mm -hmm. The Romans who were stronger had to therefore be more corrupt. Strength had to be corruption. Victory had to be uh, cheating and true victory would only ever be in some promised future rather than in the present Ooh. right so but Nietzsche hated this and that's why he wanted there to be a transvaluation of values of all values and that actually is his largest influence because if you look at modernism you look at the great writers of the 20th century they were all influenced by this point of Nietzsche Mm. And so there was a Nietzschean moment, which is a sort of transformation of self-pity. Like D.H. Lawrence saying, I never saw a wild thing 
feels sorry for itself, mm. you know. And Yeats himself, in 1935, he wrote the, he edited the Oxford Book of Modern Poetry, mm. published by Oxford University Press, 1935. It contained over 300 poems of people from his generation. And he said that you know, he's calling his contemporaries modern. But he said that with regards to the World War I poets, he said it's better for someone who had survived the war to forget about their suffering in the way that someone forgets their illness. You know, when someone recovers from a fever, you forget it and you remember that moment of great relief when you've gone back, come back to health. Amazing. Right? Rather than to write about the suffering, you write about that joy of returning to strength and vigour. Right. I need to plug a book. Right. So I'm going to plug a book into this episode. Madhouse at the End of the Earth. And this is a book about a Belgian voyage into the Antarctic where they get stuck in the ice and of the 18 men on board, 16 of them pretty much go absolutely bonkers. In you know They're stuck in the ice through winter and through summer. So they have a seven-week night in the heart of winter and a seven-week day in the heart of summer, all stuck in the ice. And of all the sailors on board, two of them stay sane pretty much and without really getting that sick through this whole period of 14 months stuck in the ice. One is the doctor who sees everything that he's doing as a almost an experiment of what happens to the human creature in this extreme environment. And so he's constantly busy with his journal entries, uh, observing all of the different um, sailors and what's wrong with them and trying to find cures with what's whatever he has at hand. And he's absolutely magnificent through it all. And the other one is this adventurer who refuses, refuses to see anything as bad. There's moments where they go out on the ice and they almost fall into a crevasse and he goes on this adventure uh, across the ice and almost dies twice. And he writes in his journal, is like, that was such an amazing adventure. I, ho I hope I have more like that. And while they're all complaining about the food, they've been eating this canned, strange canned food for like months on end. And every time he writes, oh, the food today was marvelous. The food today was prepared to perfection. And there's a point at which everyone gets scurvy and the doctor realizes that the only way to heal from the scurvy is to eat raw penguin or raw seal. And all of the other sailors are complaining about it. It's so disgusting. It tastes like it tastes like rotten fish and all of these things, and it's just absolutely foul. And he writes in his journals, today the penguin was cooked to perfection. What wonderful penguin we, we ate for lunch, etc., etc. And And through his positive view of what was around him, through extreme suffering, extreme suffering, he comes out perfectly fine. And this guy, Roald Amundsen, he went on to become the first man to go to the North Pole, and the South Pole. So something in the in the in the being, and these are the two figures 
that through this whole ordeal survived and stayed sane and didn't go mad. So thank you, Julian Sancton, and get yourself a copy of Madhouse at the End of the Earth. Links in the description below. Well, what you just said actually reminds me of Storm of Steel. Yeah. Absolutely. It reminds me of this one moment. I really enjoy it. Where Ernst Junger, he's lieutenant of a group of about 70 German shock troopers. And they were engaged in a, in like a fight with this English battalion that were dug in, in this trench. And, but they were, the English were completely cut off. There were 70 or 80 of the Germans had pretty much encircled them. And the English captain came out to declare that they'd surrendered to Ernst Junger. So he came up to Ernst Junger and he shook Ernst Junger's hand. And Ernst Junger said, I knew that I was dealing with a real man. Mm. And then they, the English were then all rounded up and taken away as prisoners. And Ernst Junger then said that they, we then, like, we then sort of, uh, we, we plundered the, 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 uh, the dugout, the officer's dugout. And he said, I took like English navy cut tobacco chocolate and English jam and Scottish woolen socks. Mm. And it's sort of like this, all this, through that, all that suffering and then this small moment of, you know, preserved food and navy cut tobacco becomes this moment of like uh, heroic joy. That's amazing because it's also like Beethoven and Wagner that there were also these giants that had to suffer massively. But they refused to see suffering as an excuse almost. Mm. They continued, they continued doing what they were doing and they continued to produce these absolute masterpieces. It's like that scene in Money Heist where the professor speaking to his brother Berlin yeah. in one of these flashbacks in the last season. And he says to Andres, his brother Berlin, he says, look, how long do you have to live? He says, the doctors are telling me seven years, six or seven, like the, 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 the life of a wild cat. Mm. And then he's, and he says, well, Andres, don't, you don't want to risk getting locked up in prison for the last few years of your life. We, we, don't, we don't have to do this heist. Mm. And then he says, no, 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 my brother, look, if, if you knew a painter who only had three years left, left of his life, would you tell him to stop painting? Mm. And then he says, he says, look at Michelangelo. And they, they, turn, they turn over to the statue. And he says, what would you say to him? You'd have said, Forza, Michelangelo, <laughs> continue with your passion, carry on with your passion. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And he says that the, about beauty, create beauty for the world. And then he says, this height is an apologia for beauty. But this is actually the thing that I ended my dissertation on. So in Nietzsche's view on tragedy, and in Yeats's view on tragedy, the hero is destroyed. And Yeats still sees this as an opportunity for joy because it's, and for Nietzsche, it's the love of fate. But in Dr. Dallas's play in Oedipus and Dionysus, Oedipus isn't destroyed. Yeats wrote his own Oedipus play because mm -hmm. he believed that the Oedipus plays that were around at the time just didn't hit it, right. didn't hit it on the stage. So he, re he rewrote it so that every single line was something that a man could say in some kind of rage or fit of passion. Something that would be words that were straight to the point. But his focus was more on the, you could say, on the delivery of the play. 
Whereas in Dr. Dallas's play, the ending of the play is rewritten, completely rewritten. So the Oedipus, the real Oedipus leaves with his wife mm. and they leave the, the palace and they walk under the trees. Mm. Whereas the fake Oedipus is put in place by Dionysus, lets them go and he puts in place the, the pretend Oedipus for the masses, for the crowd that goes out onto stage and is destroyed in front of them, tears out his eyes, just like Cahullan fighting the waves, but he, in his armour, with his heavy sword, and goes under the waves, he's gone. Mm. You know, so that, to me, is much more interesting, that the hero doesn't have to be destroyed, that there's a way to live. It's the end of the Ten Symphonies. Goku Koenig disappears, and there are three or four suspected ends but they're just left there as it could have been this, it could have been that, or it could have been that, or it could have been something completely different. And it's just left there very open. But it's interesting because I was thinking about Wagner's ring cycle and it's a tragedy. And at the end of it, everyone dies. All of the, the main characters die. But in a way, it's a tragedy, but their deaths aren't tragic because everything is leading up to Brunhilde's final act of the highest sacrifice, which is she kills herself, but she jumps into the fire in order to destroy the ring with her so that nobody else can take on the curse of the ring. But in that act, and giving the gold back to the Rhine maidens, putting the gold back to where it belongs in nature. She allows for a complete reset and the beginning of a new cycle. Read it up. What it says here, it says, Brunhilde is the first person who takes the ring into her possession and wills consciously not to possess it. It is by her act that the cyclical life pattern is allowed to revolve again and the natural life flow can continue. In the nature of the will to power, maximum power must be sought again and the story reenacted. Remember, neither Wagner nor Nietzsche is a utopian. There is no naive dream of a happy ending life on earth with everyone walking around in a stupor of goodness and exaltation. <sighs> then goes on to say, leaving aside the disaster of the universities and their historical achievement in halting utterly the philosophical discourse, children's education at home and in the school is a recipe for human tragedy. This is devastating. Book plug number two, Ten Symphonies of Gorka Koenig. But I like that tragic joy because there's a joy in fulfilling your destiny. And if your destiny is to be the tragic hero, mm. then it's like there's a, there's a, you can accept it mm. and there's acceptance in it. Both Nietzsche and Yeats uh, referred to Shakespeare's tragedies. 
as well. And Yeats wrote this poem, uh, it's called Lapis Lazuli. And it says, um, it goes, I've, it starts off, I've heard hysterical women say that they're sick of the palette and the fiddle bow of poets that are always gay. For everybody knows or else should know that unless something drastic were to be done, aeroplane and zeppelin will come out and pitch like King Billy bombles in until the town lies beaten flat. Mm. So he's saying that art shouldn't be for art's sake. Art shouldn't have a spiritual message. It needs to be political. It needs to be relevant, quote unquote. Mm. Yeah. And then he says, all perform their tragic play. There struts Hamlet, there is Lear, that's Ophelia, that Cordelia. And though the tragic scene be there, the great stage curtain about to drop, they do not break up their lines to weep, though Hamlet, ma- rumble, Hamlet rambles and Lear rages upon a hundred thousand stages. Yeats very clearly understood that uh, that the the man and woman of our time they have to transfigure their suffering it has to go through like a metamorphosis it has to change it has to be something that changes them but not into someone that's full of pity and grief but it's someone that's full of joy you know and because they've they've overcome whatever it was they had to go through and that's the Volgang as well. That's the Volgang, because freedom is not given to you by the state. Freedom is something that you have to find yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Nomos podcast. This is another one of those episodes conversing with an expert on a subject that I have absolutely no idea about. So it was so invigorating and just wonderful to share in Edward Chesson's passion of W.B. Yeats and leave feeling inspired by the example of this man's life, this great man's life, and the themes that we discussed which are so relevant to everyone today. And so once again, thank you.